Welcome to the Executive Security Podcast, where we talk to CISOs and other leaders in the cybersecurity space about their careers. Our goal on this podcast is to inspire others to join the fight. My name is Gene Fay. I'm the CEO of API security company ThreadX and the host of the Executive Security Podcast. Today, we're joined by Ian Amit. For his intro, I'll use some of his own words. I work for big organizations hacking from the inside. I really like that way, the way he talks about himself. Some of those companies include Amazon AWS, ZeroFox, IOActive, Aladdin, Finjan, and Comsec. He served in the Israeli military for four years. Thank you, Ian, for your service. Some of his hobbies include scuba diving and flying planes. And currently, Ian is an advisory CISO for Rapid7. How are you today, Ian? Pretty good, Gene. Thanks for having me on the on the podcast. Well, we're uh, super excited to have you. Uh, in our prep, I mentioned this, uh, and it's there's no visual here because it's an audio podcast, but your latest company where you're doing advisory work, uh, we literally stare at that building from our office. So I, I jokingly send this CEO, Corey Thomas, text and say, hey, I don't see you working today. Uh, but that, that's a great company. Uh, I mean, that, that whole team, Corey and everybody, has really built something pretty special. And uh, it's been great to watch that company grow over the last 10 years. Definitely, definitely. Phenomenal executive team there. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So awesome. Well, why don't we uh, jump into some of the questions? So first and foremost, how and why did you get into cybersecurity? Well, I think like any good cybersecurity professional, how was uh, very organic and and why is probably by mistake. <laughs> I mean, I've been uh, passionate. Getting. Yeah, I've always been passionate about, you know, learning. I'm, I'm mostly self-taught. And uh, as a kid, when I ran into computers for the first time, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like so much potential. And that's where I kind of started understanding what a hacker is because what I could get from the computer and their operating system and applications at the time just weren't enough. And my curiosity kind of led me to figuring how can I really get everything that I can from that, that machine, from that software. So a lot of trial and error, a lot of uh, tinkering and breaking and rebuilding. You know, one thing led to another. A few years later, I found out that this is an actual practice. It's actually a job that someone would uh, pay me to do, uh, where I would consider it as a hobby. And fast forward 25 years later, I've built a whole career around it. So it's really mostly about trying things out, uh, you know, lots of curiosity and uh, really feeding that passion to learn, constantly learn new things and trying to understand how they actually work. It's still what drives me until this day. Yeah, there's so many common themes that we've heard from other uh, senior leaders in cybersecurity. Curiosity, being learned throughout their career, you know, asking questions. And then the reality is, so for many of us, there wasn't a grand plan to become uh, leaders in cybersecurity, right? It, when we started it, were mathematicians and mm-hmm. and uh, white hat hackers weren't even developed. It was kind of early, so it's an interesting piece. But I, I think that that's a lot to do with the evolution of where the market was. I was just thinking about uh, when I started 17 years ago at the RSA conference, which is the biggest, uh, well, one of the biggest cybersecurity conferences in the U.S. Uh, you know, a hundred vendors would be a big show, and now there's six thousand funded cybersecurity companies and. Israel has a, a, a whole ecosystem of that. You see lots in New York, Boston, around the world. Uh, so it's an exciting time 
to be in there and and for you and I, uh, roughly the same age, to watch this whole progression has been really uh, something exciting. So absolutely. So, what were the keys? Do you think for achieving uh, success in your career? I think the keys, you know, I've, I've kind of iterated over them uh, when I was talking about my passion and and kind of how I build my career. The key was really, if if I'm really trying to reflect back, is to have the mindset of an eternal student mm. that you're always learning that, you know, I've seen a lot of people in the industry and in other industries uh, kind of elevate themselves into a expert status. I don't think I'm an expert. And whenever I think that I know something fairly well, I always challenge myself. I was like, all right, Ian, what are you missing here? Because there's no way, there's no way that this is, this is it. Uh, so that that constant learning, that constant change, and you know what? It actually, you know, if, if I look back at my career, I was skipping around and hopping from security to software development, back to security, architecture, research, pen testing. So I really think that the key was, and still is, to keep expanding, to keep learning new things. Uh, you know, uh, when I started, I was just focusing on software security, specifically in operating systems, specifically in, in Unix and Linux systems. And I could have probably made a career in that very narrow field. But to me, to be a good security executive or, or God forbid, a leader, you need to have that breadth. You need to have that mile-wide, inch-deep kind of understanding and the ability really across that mile-wide to tap in and, and really get some hands-on in each one of those fields, whether it's software security or, or cloud security or even physical security, which is, again, has been part of my job for five, yeah. the past four years. And that's, a, that's an amazing add-on in the last you know, four to five years that you've seen. Uh, I was talking with the former CISO at Sterling Bank, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he was like, wow, now I'm in charge of physical security. And when the two worlds combine, like you need to be able to think about it Hey, if somebody uses their badge and walks into the office in New York City and two minutes later walks in the office in Tel Aviv, you need to be able to connect those dots. And the physical security people, my brother's a retired uh, police officer. I, I love the police uh, force and everything they do, but they're not trained in that sort of technology today. They're getting that. And, and I think it's a natural evolution, to be honest. I mean, when you're looking at threats, they're not limiting themselves to just one aspect. You know, I'm, I'm just going to attack you on the cyber front. No. I mean, a threat's a threat, you know, as someone who's been dealing with red teaming for a majority of my career, I know that, you know, I've been paid to emulate, you know, a certain adversary and you're never limited to just attacking something in a specific scope. Everything is open, social, physical, electronic, everything's fair game. And it just makes sense for for the chief security officer or, or information security officer to have that span and to have that understanding. And you know what? The next step is to tiptoe further into risk because when you're protecting the company and and you're taking that security role, it has to bode well with the rest of the risks that the company is taking from a financial, operational, everything else perspective. Oh, makes sense. You hit on a term that I think some of our listeners, because they're new to cybersecurity, might not know what what it means. What does red teaming mean? Oh, great question. So red teaming is essentially the art and science of fully emulating an adversary. Now, 
Some people might think, oh, it's like pen testing. It's like, oh, well, not exactly. Pen testing is, is a technical exercise that is fairly well scoped and very well defined in terms of I want to get full coverage of a certain application or a certain range of IP addresses or whatever it is, or, or electronic assets, and uh, try to see how they fare against a electronic attack. When you're talking red teaming, you're really not looking at your assets, you're looking at the adversary and how the adversary, and you need to define it, by the way, you know, is it a competitor? Is it a random hacker on the internet? Is it a nation state? Whatever that is. And then the job of the red teamer is to understand, you know, first of all, who is the threat? Who's the threat actor? What their capabilities are? What's their accessibility and, and their ability to kind of approach or you know, what's their perspective of the, the target? What is it that they're going to go after in that target, you know, in that business? And you get to start thinking really a lot in the lines of business assets. So again, as opposed to pen testing, which are typically targeting technical assets, now you're talking about business assets. You know, where's the information? Where's the, where the crown jewel, so to speak? And you know, fast forward, the, the job of a red teamer is to have a controlled exercise, we call it an adversarial simulation or engagement, where the business does not know that this is a, an exercise, that this is a drill. And so again, that's another difference between red teaming and pen testing, where when a red team engagement is going on, 99% of the business is unaware that this is an exercise, and that makes the business operate as if this is a real threat. So you're really kind of stressing out every capability, every defensive detection, protection, response capability of the business. And again, the, the reason for doing that is for the business to really see how do I fare against a relevant threat that I care about. So that's, you know, in... 120 seconds or so yeah, no, <laughs> what so, red teaming is. Yeah, no, su super helpful. And I, I'm sure the audience uh, now has a much better grasp of what that term means. Sure. So as, as we talked at the beginning of, in preparation for this, right, a lot of our audience are people that are really excited about cybersecurity, but may not be able to get started. And I, I think you've got a great perspective uh, being from Israel, as well as uh, spending a lot of time in the U.S. So I'd love you to maybe compare and contrast if somebody's in Israel today and wants to get started and somebody's in the U.S. and wants to get started. And let's say they know nobody. Today, they know nobody. They've listened to this podcast and they, they got excited. What advice would you give them to start their journey? Well, I would have a, you know, two or three things that I think that everyone can do right now to get started, to try to get into or to get into cybersecurity. I mean, there's no try. There's only do. <laughs> The first one, and, and I think you hit it right, right on it, is find the community. There is always a community, whether you're in a small town somewhere or in a major city like New York or Tel Aviv, there's always a community. Find the local hacker gatherings, look for DEF CON groups, look for B-Sides events, things that you can get in freely to, you know, venues or events or networking things that are very open and welcoming to newcomers. Even if you know nothing about security, you're just interested, you want to meet people, you want to talk, and you know what? Maybe you ask around and listen and hear some experiences. Is this the right thing for me to do? 
these are the places to go. You know, you mentioned RSA conference before. You know, that's great, but that happens once a year, and it's a mega major Uber event in San Francisco. You're going to get lost, and no one's going to look at you. Go for the local events. They typically happen in a much higher cadence. That's step one, where, where I would start. Again, I'm a little biased. I've been part of the B-Sides movement and, and has been tightly involved with the B-Sides Las Vegas. And I've set up the, the local DEFCON group in Tel Aviv where we have monthly meetings. But that's really what, what it's about. It's about a community. It's about welcoming others and helping people learn and, and kind of progress, which leads me to the second point. And, you know, hopefully I've, I've, and, and it was a great, great question that you, you asked me about the red team. Cybersecurity is not, you know, a, a narrow field. It is unbelievably wide. So as long as you have a knack for learning, for exploring, for kind of questioning some of the assertions that people are making around security, around software, around architecture, maybe even physical, I am sure that everyone could find that foot in the door. You know, what is that immediate field that is accessible to me that I have some basic knowledge about, whether it's developing applications, it's operating systems, it's networking, it's physical security, as, as I said, you know, find that, that initial foothold in the field where you can start experimenting, you're, you can start playing. There's tons of materials, even as an analyst, you know, starting to do OSINT, open source intelligence, gathering, building profiles. These are all practices that are part of the cybersecurity world and and part of security in general. So combining those two things, you know, having a good community to tap into that will guide you, that would lead you, that would, you know, you can kind of throw ideas around and having an initial feel where you can start off by yourself. You don't have to buy expensive courses. You don't have to enroll to fancy colleges or anything like that. Everything's accessible online. You can look up You know, we've got decades of conference materials and lectures and trainings available for free. All you have to do is find that initial foothold where you're most comfortable around and welcome to the world. Welcome to at least to our world of of cybersecurity. Well said, Ian, and I I totally agree with you. I, I think for the listeners, be vulnerable, be open to learning, and know that it's a welcoming community. Like, we don't have enough people. So when that when yeah, you have yeah. a supply and demand problem at any level, people, you know, if you meet a, a SOC 1 analyst at one of these events, then I'm like, dude, let's go hang out. Let me tell you what I do because we got 15 open positions and I want to sleep at night, right? And, or yeah. you, you know, find an interesting you know, red teamer like, hey, we need people. You're not going to start with me, but let me show you the journey. People are dying to mentor. And even if you're the introvert of introvert, uh, you will find your audience in this group because it's all introverts. You know, they're, they're, yeah, it's... <laughs> but, but they force themselves to come out and find ultimately their group. And I think the, the B-side. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a very welcoming, very understanding environment, very open. And again, you know, I don't want to sound very, you know, too much like kumbaya and things are going to happen. You know, at the end of the day, you want to go through some initial journey and then, you know, Get it off with your first job. And let me flip things around a little bit. As a hiring manager, as someone who's constantly looking for employees, for people to fill in those those seats, I'm going to bias and I'm going to put a lot of additional value 
for someone who hit those two things, the community, someone who's able to converse and to learn, and for someone who showed that he learned by himself or she learned by themselves. You know, again, fancy courses and degrees have their place. You know, I have a college degree as well. I, I went through it. At the end of the day, I wanted to validate that what I've learned is actually legit. You know, it is academically sound, so to speak. And I've learned a lot from my academic degree, but you know what? I'm still learning and I'm not in college anymore. I'm not in university. And before getting into college, I was learning all the time. So again, there's a lot, I'm going to put a lot of value into someone who can show me that they've built a home lab and they tried it by themselves and they failed and it didn't work. And they started debugging it, just going through that story and hearing the passion and someone's narrative about why is it that they want to get in there and what are they doing to get in there are going to buy you so much extra points from my perspective as a hiring manager than someone who's just ticking off boxes on a technical sort of a, a checklist. Yeah, you can't make up for persistence at all, right? It, and that has to come through in, in your interview, especially when you're, you're not coming with, uh, hey, I've worked at Rapid7, I've worked at IBM Security, I've worked at... Mm-hmm. Uh, Sentinel One, right? Okay, th- those are things that happen future in your career. But if you're trying to kick open the door, there is a lot of open positions. But we need people that are that are going to bring it. They want to make this their career, and that and what they don't know, they're going to be vulnerable enough to go learn. But they're going to do that on their own. They're not waiting to be spoon fed. Hey, Ian, what do I do next? Like, go figure it out, right? You know, like let's go. Like, exactly. We, we're all busy, so that makes sense. So. I guess switching it just a little bit topic slightly, but from a kind of who was your biggest influence to becoming a CISO or a CSO and kind of, you know, what, what did they do that was such a big you know, influence on your career? Good question. You know, I've, I've had several people that I've kind of looked up to and learned a lot from, even if they don't know it or realize it throughout my career. I think the first time I ran into a, what I call the, the kind of a major league CISO is when I ran into Phil Venables, who used to be the CISO for, for Goldman Sachs. Yeah, sure. You know, I just loved that, my, my friends, but no bullshit attitude, very direct, with a, a keen understanding of how security aligns to the business. You know, I mentioned before, in the context of red teaming and, and security and risk, that at the end of the day, you're serving the business. You're trying to make sure that the business is enabled to take risks and to be competitive and successful. And I think Phil sort of exhibited, at least from my vantage point, those values and those understandings. I've had a fortune of working with Phil later on throughout the years. I have the privilege of being able to, you know, to call him a a good colleague and, and a friend and you know, we used to to meet sometimes in the, when I lived in New York, we used to have like a some cadence of catching up over coffee mm-hmm. and just exchanging. You know, I was in awe by the fact that he would actually make time for, <laughs> for someone like myself and just to catch up and, and, you know, kind of exchange ideas and what are you doing? What am I doing? So he's definitely been a, a great influence and uh, learned a lot from him. Someone else that I really looked up to and learned a lot from, mostly from the, the more, I would say, human side or, or management style of being a security executive is, is uh, Jack Daniels. Jack started B-Sides. I can't remember how many years ago, but uh, I'm not going to age us. But, uh, 
that passion to community and that relentless insistence of not selling out and making sure that this is done for the people who didn't get a chance. You know, we're fortunate enough, you know, when I, when I met Jack and when I started getting involved with B-Sides, I was already speaking at conferences and going places and have a pretty good network, but Jack always did and still does force me to kind of look back and say, well, you know, how did you break in? You know, what, what are the opportunities? How do we make sure that there are more opportunities for people and more enablement, more openness? So, you know, kind of bringing those two personas in my head into my world and kind of how I put myself up in an executive position as, as a security leader, I think these are kind of two notable personas that, that definitely influenced me in, you know, in my journey to becoming a, an executive, a security executive. Well, I think you hit on a couple of themes that we've heard in some of the prior podcasts and that idea of what Phil exemplifies, which is the ability to take very technical things that we as cybersecurity uh, leaders are involved in, our teams are involved in, put those in business context. Like something as simple as like CFO going, hey, you know, you want to spend $100,000, you want to spend a million dollars. We didn't have it last year. We were fine. Why do we suddenly need that? And taking that into a business level discussion. So the other audience that listens to our podcast are people that aspire to, to be you, Ian. And I think you hit on that really perfectly. And then the second piece of it, if, if you want to be a leader, then act like a leader. You know, get involved in the community. Think about how to empower your employees. It's more than can they do their jobs. Get to know them. What do they aspire to do? Help them get to the next level. Even if you're not in a management role, but you become that informal leader, then suddenly you'll get leadership positions and you start to build your network and you'll get speaking. You know, it's that whole cycle of it that I think you hit on. It's just so many great points for people to, you know, things that to think about when you're in the industry and you want to get to that next level. So I think great points on that one. So last question, what do you think is the biggest misconception of a career of a CISO? I'm actually going to attack the one that I get the most, which is how do you sleep at night? Like the people just expect us to be a train wreck of like nerves and anxiety and, you know, oh my God, I can't sleep. All those, you know, hackers are like ninjas in the lawn and hackers dangling from the stairs. Like, no, it's, I think there's that's a huge misconception, or at least I haven't experienced it myself. Maybe it's it's something's wrong with my, with me, but uh, I really think that once you get to that point of being in charge of security for a large organization, you need to have the ability to check yourself and get to a point very very quickly of understanding what matters and what doesn't matter. Mm. And not every little thing, not every new breach or vulnerability or whatever it is, it's not the end of the world. Yes, vendors tend to overcapitalize on some of those things. And I'm, I'm on that side, yes, you know. I don't want to, you know, I haven't had a chance to work with Red X, but uh, I'm sure that marketing people and vendors are like, we got to capitalize on this. We got to find the angle to the the latest whatever and show our audience that we can solve it. It's like, yes. Yeah. So if you just tap into that, it sounds horrible and everything's like a chicken ladle. But once you're inside, once you get a good grasp of what is the business doing, what is my exposure, what are my actual threats, 
And you know what? If the, even if the threat is real and it's imminent, what's the worst case scenario? Being able to go through that mentally and, you know, to a point quantifying, like, you know what? Even if this, 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 and that happened and everything just goes wrong, what's going to be the impact dollar-wise? And you know what? More often than, than not, that number isn't the end of the world. And that puts everything in perspective. So again, it's not that I sound, you know, sleep like a baby every night and just forget about everything, but I can definitely sleep well at night. I know that I did my best. I know that I'm putting up the, the best team that I can build at any given time. You mentioned, and I mentioned before, investing in people and promoting them. I see that, you know, every manager, the first thing that they need to do is not technical. It's not knowledge. It's finding someone who can replace you. And a few, a few someones <laughs> is even better. And, and making sure that you're spotting the potential in every one of your employees and elevating them and pushing them to, to progress and be better and, and be more successful. Guess what? It makes my technical job so much easier because I can trust those people. I can trust myself. And yes, I can sleep well at night. So I think, again, Probably first, you know, biggest misconception. Every time I'm in some networking events, like, oh, you're the CSO of this and that, or you were the CSO of, of that. How could you do that? What? How do you deal with stress? Well, and I'm always kind of sort of ashamed to admit, like, I'm actually sleeping pretty well. So <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know I if you got that yet on on your your podcast, no, but uh, I, I definitely call this a misconception. Yeah, I I, th I think it's spot on because it, it comes down to successful CISOs are the ones building the best teams. And when you've got a great team, you know you're doing everything you possibly can. Do breaches happen? Breaches happen. You know, we're, we're fighting an adversary with unlimited time. Unlimited they will happen. They will yeah. happen. You're paid to deal with a breach. You're not paid to hermetically seal an organization. You know, I, I can tell you that's very easy to do. Shut everything down, unplug everything. Great. But then there's no business. You're paying right. to deal with the incidents. So don't be afraid of an incident. By the way, as a side note, and sorry for stealing, oh, <laughs> kind of stopping in the middle, but please. I was like, side note, events are phenomenal. Incidents are phenomenal. An amazing learning opportunity to understand, oh, you know what? We missed this and this, you know, that threat actually materialized. Here's proof for us of what to learn. You know, what, what's our learning from this? How could we improve in time to detect, time to respond, minimize the impact? These things will happen, you know? And so there's no point of just going crazy around, you know, what's going to happen when it happens. Well, it's going to happen. And then everyone's looking at you to manage that situation. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I think spot, spot on. And I, uh, Totally agree. It, again, goes back to the, the great CISOs that I've had the pleasure of meeting, whether on the podcast or just uh, throughout my career, their ability to deal with these things. And, and again, we, we combine where we started, which is learning. Even in the face of an attack, we want to go, or what's the retro? What do we learn from that? How are we going to get better? How are we going to do our best to make sure that never happens again? And then bring that to the rest of the organization, bring it back to the board. Hey, you know, this is what happened. This is what we're going to do. Here's the remedy. So that learning cycle in one's career never ends. And yep. uh, it's a great point that you made for sure. Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Well, 
That's all we have for today. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Ian, for joining us and sharing your journey and thoughts on careers in cybersecurity. Please join us next time for another episode of the Executive Security Podcast. Thanks a lot and have a great day. Thank you.